Good morning. So good to see you this morning. You know, many years ago at an asylum in Europe, a test was devised to determine if a patient was ready to go home, leave the facility, and live on their own. The test was this. The patient would be locked in the janitor's closet, and a stopper would be put in the sink. The sink would be turned on, and of course, as it filled up, it would overflow, and the patient was given a mop and told to clean up the mess. After several minutes, workers would come and open the door to check on the patient, and if the patient were mopping vigorously, they knew that he wasn't ready to go home, because obviously, he didn't have the capacity to address the real issue. And I think there are some Christians in the same boat. They are vigorously trying to mop the floor instead of getting to the real issue. Their vigorous effort, they try to, they try to mop up their sins rather than going to the source. But Jesus came so that we would not have to sling the mop any longer. Can I be honest with you about something, something that irks me? It's not a big deal, I guess. Maybe I'm I'm becoming a dinosaur and things bother me more than they should. But when my son was really young, he played on a baseball team that was really bad. I think they won maybe one or two games. And that's not a problem. I mean, you're going to be on bad teams. You're not always going to be on winning teams. There's a lot you can learn from losing. But what did bother me is at the end of the year, they got a trophy. For what? Like, you're the worst team. They deemed it a participation trophy. Well, I don't like participation trophies. I mean, my feeling is that it kind of tarnishes first place if everybody gets a trophy, right? I mean, when I was younger, you got last place, you cried about it, your mom bought you a snow cone and told you to work harder. But you know what grace is? Grace is getting something you didn't earn. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Grace is letting Jesus mop up the mess. I want you to look with me at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We've been examining the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, And this morning, I want us to continue that series by dissecting grace, by looking deeper into grace. And you say, well, Chris, grace doesn't appear anywhere in that passage you just read. In fact, grace doesn't appear anywhere in Matthew chapter 6. And to that, I would say you are exactly right. However, it is behind everything that Jesus is teaching, not only in this passage, not only in Matthew chapter 6, but the entire Sermon on the Mount. How many of you like to eat dessert first? I know it's breaking the rules, but how many of you like to bypass the rules sometimes and get to the encore while skipping the main event? You ever do that? It's okay to admit it. I won't tell anybody. That's what dessert is. It's the reward. 
It's the encore. You don't agree with me? As a parent, think about it. Why do you bribe your kids with dessert if it's not the reward? Because you do. You better eat all your your vegetables. Better eat all your supper. or You're not going to get dessert. Dessert is the encore. The event is supper. Even as adults, our stomach longs for the pecan pie or the strawberry shortcake. And we know we have to eat the casserole before we can get to it, right? My family likes to go to Brahms. When we're traveling back to Paragould, Arkansas, we stop at Sulphur Springs almost every time and eat at Brahms. Let me tell you this. We don't stop at Brahms for the hamburgers. We don't stop at Brahms for the salad. It's fine and good, I guess. We stop at Brahms for one reason, for the encore, not the main event. The Pharisees were like that. They wanted the encore. They didn't care about the main event. They wanted to skip dessert. They wanted the reward first, and the reward came in the form of recognition and honor and fame. They filled up on applause when they should have been filling up on holiness. And they used the spiritual disciplines of prayer and giving and fasting as photo ops. It's photo op faith. It's doing righteous things for an unrighteous reason. And Jesus says, put down your trumpet, quit making a performance out of your piety. And then he says this, notice verse 5 and following. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you... When you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's photo op faith. It's a religion of externals. It's bringing your faith to the forefront for the purpose of fanfare. And then notice what he says about fasting. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So like stage actors, which is what the word hypocrite means here, the Pharisees were playing a role. They were giving an Oscar-worthy performance, but God was not impressed. The Pharisees were seeking an earthly reward when they should have been seeking a heavenly one. They got a heavenly rebuke in exchange for their earthly reward. The religious leaders forgot who the audience is. It wasn't them. They weren't the main event. It's God. They should have had stage fright. They should have been terrified for turning something holy into turning something holy into something haughty, but they missed the point of the performance. Faith isn't me-centered. It's he-centered. And when we turn it into something that is self-centered or me-centered, it becomes consumeristic. I turn faith into a photo op. I become infected with the disease of me. God, Jesus, faith, discipleship, church are all means to an end. And that end is my comfort, my happiness, my well-being, my glory. And Jesus says, no, you're not the audience. This is not your show. It's not your performance. You're not center stage. You're not the encore. And do you know why? Well, because of grace. You ever watch Grey's Anatomy? I haven't. never seen it. I think it's a medical drama, but I'm not even sure about that. We're not going to talk about Grey's Anatomy this morning. We're going to talk about Grace Anatomy. Let's talk about the anatomy 
of grace. And here's the first thing that you need to know about grace. There's no hope without it. Sorry. Now, that's not me talking. That's Scripture that states that. Romans 3 and 10, there is none righteous, not even one. Verse 23 reads, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Go to the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. And we see that Paul gets straight to the point. He minces no words when he writes, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making a request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So this letter starts out nice enough. You know, Paul compliments them. He greets them with kindness, and they must have been thinking, oh, you know that Paul, what a nice guy, what a great man. But things escalate pretty quickly. Notice what he continues writing. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You go to Romans chapter 2, and Paul gets into how some are storing up the wrath of God because of their, their stubbornness and because of their unfaithfulness. And then you go to Romans chapter 3, and Paul talks about how there's no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's what you have in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3. The good, the bad, and the ugly. That's it. Romans 1 through 3 is the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the context is mostly in reference to the Jew and the law. Paul is making a point to say that there is no partiality with God, that the Jew will not be saved by their heritage, that the uncircumcised Jew has no special status over the Gentile. You're all in the same boat. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, not even one. Even the Jew is not going to slip through the back door. The cross and the blood that was shed upon it appeases the wrath of God. That's why Jesus died, because God's wrath had to be satisfied. And so when you look at the cross, you see the demonstration of the righteousness of God. The torture, the humiliation, the pain, and the agony show that God does not let anyone off the hook, not even his own son, because somebody has to pay. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. A holy God must punish sin, and so... 
the cross demonstrates the wrath of God being satisfied. An impartial and righteous God did not even let his own son slip in through the back door. But there's more. If it ended with what we read in Romans chapter 3, that there is none righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if that's where it ended with the good, the bad, and the ugly, it'd be pretty sad. But it doesn't end there. It's not a tragic ending. There's hope. Verses 24 through 26 of Romans 3 reads, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you look at the cross, you see the ugliness of sin But look at it again, and what do you see? You see the grace of God. You see redemption and justification. God is righteous, he is just, and because he is both these things, he must punish sin, and because he is both these things, he has set forth and met the requirements of an atoning sacrifice. Notice verse 26 of Romans 3 again. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You need to underline that. Highlight it, circle it, whatever you need to do. But that is beautiful. That the righteous judge finds us not guilty when we accept his free gift of grace. You move over to Romans chapter 5 and probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture starting in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly dare uh, die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. When we look at the cross, we see two profound truths, at least two. Number one, God held nothing back. And number two, it is totally undeserved. God didn't just say, I love you. He proved it in action. Words like justified, redemption, propitiation, justifier. These are words all related to the amazing grace of God. There is no hope without grace, but with grace, sinners are justified. Here's what else you need to know about grace. We are saved by it. We are saved by grace. Salvation is either earned or it is given. And I think we've already established the fact that you can't earn it. So it is given. Grace is a free gift. Secondly, grace obligates. Just because it's a gift doesn't mean that there is no obligation on our part. Grace does not negate obedience. However, obedience doesn't merit salvation. We obey because we trust in God not so that we can earn anything or merit his favor. However, a gift is not a gift until it is received. And that's where obedience enters into the picture. Grace is God's part in the salvation process, and faith is man's. Grace is ongoing. It's not a one-shot deal. It's not like I get grace at baptism and I never need it again. Grace is ongoing. You will need it the rest of your lives. Grace is something we will respond to for the rest of our lives. Also, you cannot take grace too far. It bothers me 
when, when we as Christians allow the religious world around us to hijack certain concepts, whether it be the Holy Spirit or the cross or, or whatever it may be, we allow the religious world to hijack these terms and we just dispel of it. We don't use these terms anymore. We stay away from them. Even though they're biblical, we take our cues from the world around us rather than taking our cues from the Bible and from God. And maybe because some in the past have taken grace and perverted it or misunderstood it, we've kind of pushed back and maybe too far in the other direction. But folks, you can't take grace too far. You can't talk about it enough. You can't overemphasize it. You need to understand it. You need to apply it. You need to get acquainted with it. God wishes to show us, and I quote, the immeasurable riches of his grace. And finally, don't think of grace as a, as a what. Think of it as a who. Jesus is grace personified. Grace is not doctrine. Grace is not rules. Grace is not morality. Grace is a person. Jesus equals grace. Why is this important? Because grace is about restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Grace is about acceptance. It's about fellowship. All things that were lost with the fall of man, these things are redeemed when we accept the gift of grace. What Jesus, what Jesus, I should say, accomplished on the cross is greater than what Adam started in the garden. Let me say that again. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is greater than what Adam started in the garden. What Adam did brought devastating consequences, no doubt. But what Jesus did overpowered all of them. Romans 5, 18 and following. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Jesus, we have gained so much more than what was lost in the garden. And it all boils down to grace. Again, grace is unmerited favor. The word for grace in the Greek, charis, refers to a superior showing favor to an inferior. It's like a king bestowing favor on a subject. That's what God has done for us. You're nothing special. I'm nothing special. I mean, sorry, we're not. Not on our own anyway. But with grace, we are more than special. We are his, and everything we are, everything we have is a testament to God's grace. You know, you woke up this morning, and the sun was shining, and you got out of bed, you got dressed, and you came to worship. You know what that is? That's grace. And if you get to go to bed tonight and wake up tomorrow morning and get dressed and go to work and come home and play with your kids and go to bed again, you know what that is? That's grace. If you're sitting here in a pew this morning, and you are not a Christian, that's grace. God has given you one more opportunity to listen to one more sermon. Every day that you are blessed to draw air, to take a breath, is grace. And it all comes from God. Because you have one source. You realize that, don't you? You have one source. A source is a supplier of something that you cannot produce on your own. You have one source. 
In February of 2021, we all gained a greater appreciation for electricity, didn't we? Many of us in this room were without power for several days, including my friends Scott and Carmen Chandler. Four days, Scott? Five days? And they lived by me, and they were snowed in. And so Scott said, we, we have a source of heat. It's the fireplace. And the only reason we have that source is because it runs off propane. And he says, I'm about out of propane. Can you come pick me up and take me to a place where I can get some propane? My truck did pretty well on the snow, so I, I came by. I got him. We got him some propane. One source. Scott didn't, didn't have the ability to produce propane. He had to have a source. It's the same with us. We have one source and only one source. Everything else is a resource. Your money, your job, your abilities, they're all resources. They're not the source. They're all a means by which God operates. Your life is a resource for God to use to accomplish his purpose. The problem is we too often make the resource the source. And so we expect our job, our money, our, maybe even our kids or our marriage to supply us. And when that happens, we turn those things into an idol. Because those things are not sources. They are resources. Only God is the source. He's the source. Everything else is a resource. Listen to Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It is only by God's grace that you even have the ability to go to work and earn a living. Paul said it like this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He is the source. We are a resource that gives him all the glory. You see how this fits with Matthew chapter 6? Grace is behind all that God has done for us. It's behind all that God continues to do for us. It is behind everything that God will do for us in the future. We don't give for show. We don't pray for show. We don't fast for show. We do these things for the sake of grace. If you give begrudgingly, then you don't really understand grace. If you pray out of a sense of duty, then you don't really grasp grace. If you fast simply to show your piety, then you don't really comprehend grace. The Pharisees wanted the reward, and they didn't understand that grace was its own reward. Without it, you have no shot at winning. But with it, you're more than conqueror. Jesus mopped up our sins. He gave us a trophy we didn't deserve. So our giving is grace-based. Our prayers are grace-based. Our fasting is grace-motivated. In fact, everything that Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount is grace-centered. You turn the other cheek. You go the, the, the extra mile. You treat your neighbor as you would like to be treated. You don't judge. You don't do all those things because of grace. Because of what Jesus has done for you, it all boils down to that. It all comes down to the source. Our Lord is the source of grace, and we are a resource or a means by which God displays his amazing grace. Here's what happens all too often, though. I have this apple that represents our resources. So this is our time, our abilities, 
our money, our work, our career, all those things are represented by this apple. And we say, God, thank you so much for all these blessings. I cannot thank you enough for blessing me. But you know, I got a plan for retirement. Thank you, God, so much for your love and grace and mercy. But you understand, I got a lot of irons in the fire right now. God, thank you for who you are and who you're making me out to be. I'm not ashamed of you. I don't care who knows that I follow you. Probably won't be at church this Sunday. I got too many things going on. Got to catch up on sleep. Been a busy week. Got too many things to do around the house. God, thank you so much for not giving up on me, for continuing to forgive me and to bless me. You know my heart. God, I love you. I'm so grateful for your grace. Here's my offering of thanks. What do you think? You have one source. And the source of grace has given you grace in abundance. Don't give God your leftovers. Need to get closer to God this morning? Let us help you. Kevin's going to lead us in a song. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?